The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. Today's guests are Erin Hudson, who reports on distressed debt for Bloomberg News in New York. We're delighted to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. We're also very pleased to welcome Paul Vickers, who covers energy for Bloomberg Intelligence in London. Yeah, thanks for having me as well. We'll be coming back to energy in a bit. There's lots of exciting stuff going on there, so do stay with us. But first, Erin Hudson with Bloomberg News. You've been digging deep into distressed debt. A lot of companies are running into trouble at the moment with interest rates rising and the economy slowing down, potentially tipping into a recession. Inflation and volatility in the financial sector don't help. A lot of regional banks are really struggling. Plus, the anxiety about the debt ceiling is the highest I've seen in years. I have to go back to 2011 for the last time it's been this exciting. So you've been talking to some very large distressed debt investors. What are they saying? Is, there, is everything about to blow up? And what do they see as the big opportunity here, Erin? Well, it sounds like there's a lot to look at um, all over the place, and especially to do with the banks. Um, you know, it sounds like everyone is doing work on what are the assets um, that various banks have? What is the structure of their capital, uh, their capital stack? So, you know, they're sort of looking at how they can get involved, um, you know, where they want to make their bets. And, you um, you know, what the assets are. Um, obviously, we kind of saw the issues with um, with Silicon Valley Bank and the duration of um, their treasuries. Um, but, you know, I think now people are sort of looking at the commercial real estate loans. Um, I've had investors mention commercial and industrial loans um, in particular as, as something they're, they're taking a look at. So, yeah, it seems like this, the, the feeling is that this also op- opens up opportunities um, outside just the banks themselves um, for direct lending and, um, you know, and then obviously companies themselves that no longer have the same access to credit if they relied on uh, the regional banks. Let me just stop you there. On the banks, though, I mean, we've saw this wave of distress. We saw Credit Suisse basically disappear. We saw all of these other regional banks. There was kind of a domino effect. I mean, it just seemed very precarious, even last, you know, last few days, last few weeks, and we're talking sort of mid-May now. Um, is the crisis over? Uh, I wish, I wish we knew. Um, I, I don't know if anyone, um, I, impossible to say, um, but I think there's a sense that there will be more distress for sure, um, and there's a lot more work to do. Okay, so people are sort of trading and betting on now they're looking, as you say, the balance sheets of these banks. They're looking at exposure to treasuries, um, which have gone down because of duration, looking at exposure to commercial real estate. Um, And so do we expect now distressed investors to be much more actively engaged than looking at these banks much more closely? Is Is that the takeaway? It sounds like it. Yeah. And it also sounds like there's sort of a sense that depositors themselves are 
a bit more of a flight risk than, you know, before. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of moving pieces. Who actually made money on those trades? Uh, some people. <laughs> um, Marathon Asset Management in particular, uh, we we reported um, that they made $30 million trading um, Credit Suisse bonds before the takeover by UBS. Um, the you know, some of these bets will take a long time to play out. Um, in uh, Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, you know, that bankruptcy is ongoing. So it'll take a while to know, you know, who made, who, who who's the biggest winner or the biggest loser. But definitely an opportunity for the distress shops. They're also looking at consumer companies, right? I mean, one of the people you were talking to is actually handling the liquidation of Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, and you know, brick and mortar retail generally is getting hit especially hard right now. What's the outlook there? Yeah, I, I mean, um, obviously there have have been several retail bankruptcies so far this year, um, and s- several notable liquidations. Um, but you know, I think that the consumer is overall holding up better than expected, and and retail too. I think. You know, there's a sense that won't last, Um, you know, and especially if uh, a retailer is not, you know, the top one or two in their sector, um, they are probably going to be facing some struggles. Um, But it seems like there might be a little bit more runway there. Um, But, you know, there's there's definitely some big, big fundamental questions like, uh, like what is what is the value of a brand? You know, are people do people really have brand loyalty anymore? Um, you know, so consumer behavior, I think, is changing consumer behavior um, is definitely something that like no one can really take for granted anymore, and it's it's maybe a bit harder to predict. They're also being quite affected by the pullback by regional banks, right? I mean, the, they they were funding a lot of these companies on the retail side, so that's going to hurt. And then, um, as you say. The economy is slowing. There's inflation. Consumers have been resilient, but they're not presumably going to remain that way forever. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a sense that you know cracks are starting to emerge. Um, one investor was sort of mentioning just the delinquency rates in subpar car loans as one indicator that all is not well, um, and that you know yeah th- there will be problems. There are problems. Um, but it's taking a while to trickle through. Another one that, that we constantly hear about in the context of distress is healthcare. Um, and distressed debt investors seem to like that one. Why do they get involved there? Yeah, I think um, I think the sense is there's a lot of opportunity there um, to kind of, you know, right size a balance sheet, um, sort of adjust the valuation of these companies. And um, I think, you know, there's there's some some triggers there that you you know you can't always see coming but you know regulatory policy changes um so healthcare services is a business that they've sort of flagged as uh highly highly interesting um and then also pharma um with the idea that you know if a company loses a patent for a drug you know that creates uh trouble for the company and it's kind of an opportunity for distressed investors. Um, so yeah, there's been, you know, there's obviously a lot of changes, um, that have happened, the strain of the pandemic. Um, so I think there's a lot of, um, headwinds there for those businesses, which creates opportunities for the distressed investor community. 
But shouldn't those companies be in good shape? I mean, we're all getting older and sicker and you know, living on forever. So it wasn't, isn't, why, why aren't those firms doing really, really well? Um, well, it's, so it's kind of like this mix of, so if um, regulatory and policy changes um, happen that, which have happened over the past couple of years, which change the amount of, you know, reimbursements that these companies can collect from health insurance or, or government agencies. Um, then you have the labor pressures, like, you know, the difficulty hiring skilled staff, um, needing to pay them more and more. Um, you know, those are a few of the things. And then with the pandemic, you know, a lot of people, you know, stopped going in for these elective elective and preventive care type of treatments. So that those are sort of like the biggest money makers at times for many of um, these these healthcare services. And, you know, it's also not always the most desirable job to have anymore. Um, so I think there's just, there's a whole, you know, Bloomberg has done a lot of great reporting um, on, on, on the pressures that are facing healthcare. It does feel a little un, like counterintuitive. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a sector that's in the crosshairs. Nothing that came up um, when you were talking to the distressed investors was Evergrande, which is a massive Chinese property developer that we've talked a lot about on this show. They have you know tens of billions of dollars in debt. They've got a lot of creditors all around the world. Um, specifically on the US investor side, I'm interested to kind of understand what did, what did they learn from this process? It, it seemed to have progressed very, very quickly and um, you know investors were very engaged. So what, what did they learn? Yeah, I, I mean it's 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 far from over. Uh, it's not quite over, um, but it seems like there's sort of a uh, some investors are walking away with a bit of a renewed sense of faith in the in the system um, and confidence, I guess, in the uh, you know the restructuring process that Chinese companies um, will undergo and how how they um, approach it. So I think. You know, that seems to be the takeaway for the moment. Um, but, you know, of course, it's an ongoing situation. So um, whether it will pay off the way that they're hoping and expecting it will remains to be seen. Um, so, you know, definitely a story will continue to follow because, um, yeah, it would have some big impacts. I guess also, you know, China being the second biggest economy, they need capital, they need foreign capital, particularly to sustain and, and build that economy. And, and they're going to need a lot of it over a long period. So they want to keep foreign investors happy, right? Yes. And that definitely came up as, you know, an, sort of um, the thesis that was kind of under um, underpinning that bet is the idea that, you know, offshore creditors aren't going to be completely, you know, um, completely shafted or, or put thrown to the side um, because, you know, eventually they will need to come in to um, provide capital. So, yeah, it seems like that is definitely uh, the belief that's sort of driving a lot of those investors who have gotten involved. Okay, great. So um, before we talk to Paul Vickers at Bloomberg Intelligence, stepping back, what are investors surprised about right now and what are they preparing for for the next, let's say, 12 months? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the ongoing strength of the housing market is a point of surprise and sort of fascination. Um, seems like um, the shift to EV, um, EV mandates, 
electric, electric vehicles, vehicles right? yep. yeah okay. and just that that whole um shift in the in the auto sector i think there's the feeling that that's going to cause a lot of disruption which again is going to make uh, distressed investors and uh um the community of advisors in the distressed in, uh world very busy and then i think there's also sort of um you know just looking at the phenomenon of the meme stocks i think that's becoming a more a, a greater factor when people are evaluating these situations um there's sort of the sense that that has staying power as much as the meme stock era seems to have passed um it seems like you know it's still lingering and in terms of opportunity i mean we've been hearing for years um i have particularly distressed investors dry powder you know billions and billions of it just stacking up on the sidelines but never enough distress for them to really deploy all of that um are we finally i mean rates going up the economy going down um all these other things you know geopolitics all this other volatility is this now the moment for distressed debt are they excited now are they happy i don't know i it, unfortunately i think there's i think there's some mixed feelings one investor who um probably put it best is looking at in the context of looking at commercial real estate is sort of like, you know, you see there's problems, but is this the moment or should you wait six months? Should you wait a year? Are things going to get even worse? And, you know, it makes an even more attractive investment opportunity. Um, so I think time is going to tell. Great stuff. Aaron Hudson from Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Read all of Aaron's scoops on the Bloomberg terminal and of course at Bloomberg.com. Moving on to another big topic, as I mentioned earlier, we are very fortunate to have with us Paul Vickers, who looks at energy for Bloomberg Intelligence. What's going on with the energy sector, Paul? Oil prices are down. We're heading into a recession, as we keep talking about. Um, plus, there's a war going on just to the east of you. Is it all bad news over there? Well, not so much bad news, I think, for the energy sector. I, I work for Bloomberg Intelligence. I cover energy and utilities across Europe, a couple of global oils. And of course, the, the the high oil prices have been uh, been a windfall for them. They they've done particularly well over the last uh, eighteen months or so. Um, less could be said for the utilities. You think again, being a sort of power producer, you think higher power prices would be good for these guys. That's not always the case. They're they're often hedged very heavily up to one to three years ahead, uh, and the high prices and volatility have created liquidity problems. That the Russian supply cuts have. Um, Know, impacted those that were dependent on them. It's brought companies like uh, Uniper to its knees, and nationalization, uh, nationalization by the German government. It's uh, had a for other reasons as well. EDF was nationalized because it had to you know, buy a lot of power in the, in the market at very high prices. So for utilities, these, these higher power prices haven't uh, haven't been a godsend at all. In fact, they've they, they've uh, really threatened the very sort of structure of the entire industry. Uh, but what we have seen is the EU has responded to to these Russian gas supply cuts. They're now running at around 10% of what they were prior to the invasion. Uh, but they've essentially been replaced. If you look at what's been happening with, with power prices or, or the stock of gas prices, uh, they're around 35 euros a megawatt hour now. Uh, they peaked at over 300 during the, uh, uh, during last summer. And of course, with, with gas prices setting the, setting the price for the paying the power market much of the time, the same thing's happened in power. They're around 90 euros a megawatt hour. From a peak of over 600. So the prices have really fallen, mainly because the EU's taken an awful lot of initiatives. You know, it's boosted LNG supplies, it, it has pushed renewables, uh, it's increased imported uh, gas by pipeline from countries like Norway and Algeria. Uh, it's also you know, made a big push to uh, uh, to improve you know, the energy efficiency and demand side management. And at the same time, they, they also achieved their goal of having you know, European. 
looking at gas storage stocks, 95% full at the start of the heating season. Uh, they achieved that, and uh, it never went below 50. Now they're restocking again. So really, when you've got 50% of, of your gas supply still full at the very sort of trough of, of, of the cycle, moving into the, into the summer sort of cool, uh, the cooler period, a warmer period and, and the sort of cooler gas uh, demand, um, it's in pretty good shape, uh, and power prices reflect that. So what's happened now is these companies have, um, you know, the, the risks have gone. Those risks of volatility, of liquidity, uh, or of having to buy sort of, uh, you know, short power in the market, they've disappeared. These companies are in a much better place right now. And in fact, they're very well placed for, for this year as they've managed to put on hedges at higher levels. So there's quite a bit of earnings, sort of growth is baked in. So yeah, we're, we're pretty relaxed about the utility sector. I think. You know, from my perspective, it's probably, uh, you know, it looks like it's time to call the end of the energy crisis. I think that's quite a quite a sort of strong statement. I think the regulators would be sort of less willing to do so. But you know, if you take sort of guidance from what the, the World Health Organization last week called an end to the, um, uh, end to the COVID-19 emergency status, and they said it's time to you know, transition into long-term management. I think that's the same for the energy energy crisis. I think we're, we're through it. It's never going to be the same again. I mean, the, the Europe is now reliant, it has no what, like 10% of the sort of Russian gas supplies that formerly uh, supplied around 40% of the market. They've gone, they're not coming back. But they, the, the authorities have taken measures to, to replace it and to compensate for it. And I think we're in the much calmer waters ahead. So it's all um, looking pretty rosy then, Paul. I mean, would you call this sector, uh, specifically the energy sector, would you call it defensive um, relative to other parts of the economy? Well, certainly the uh, the oil and gas sector, I'd say, is uh, oil prices. You see, have fallen from their peaks. Um, you know, OPEC uh, OPEC Plus is doing what it can to, to sort of maybe support that. So that there's you know the feeling that there's sort of their their ideal sort of support level more might be around eighty dollars a barrel. So if you work on that sort of level and look at the let's say look at the oil majors, I mean they have break even levels. This is after after dividends and capex have been paid. Um, of around forty to fifty dollars, so they're still uh, you know, throwing off a, uh, an awful lot of free cash flow at that level. Uh, they may well be returning it mostly to shareholders now, but you know, it doesn't really matter because they managed to bring leverage down to, you know, in some cases, negative levels, in other cases, sort of single digits, sort of debt to equity. So there's an awful lot of capacity for these guys to uh, to re-leverage the balance sheet. So even if oil does drop a little bit more, uh, they'll cut share buybacks back uh, down. But you know, there's still plenty of uh, capacity to re-leverage without threatening credit quality and that's sort of key for the sector. So yes, I would say that the oil and gas is a safe haven. I think the other side of the coin of utilities it is um, where is the risk on the downside previously? Uh, I don't see much upside because I think these companies will use any sort of windfalls they get from higher hedge levels just to reinvest more and more into the renewables uh, sector. This is really the only constraint to their growth is their sort of balance sheets. And they're really fairly stretched. So they don't have the same flexibility as they all the gas companies do to, to re-leverage. So the higher earnings they're seeing from these power prices now, from, from uh, say inflation-linked uh, earnings in, in, in the regulated network businesses, these are all allowing them to actually sort of take on more debt and, and drive renewables growth. I mean, they're talking some some companies, you know, 15 20% sort of growth over the sort of midterm as they roll out you know, wind and solar and and hydrogen and, and, and network upgrade projects. So, yeah, this is there's a great growth um, yeah, phase going on in the utility sector. I mean, you're not really seeing that in, in the oil and gas sector. These guys haven't really boosted capex that much. Um, yeah, there's an element of, of rising spending, but it's not really about growth. That's really about cash flow. Whereas I think in 
futilities, whereas the risks were you know, very heavily on the downside at the middle of last year. So Unifer went 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 fast, EDF got uh, nationalised, the VNG, another German gas supplier, almost got nationalised, they managed to do a last minute deal to avoid it. All the energy suppliers in the UK were going fast almost on a daily basis. Now, those risks have gone now, and I think they can look forward to you know to the future with a lot more confidence with sort of solid, uh, you know, high mid to uh, single digit sort of earnings growth, uh, stable leverage, and a couple of companies maybe looking at sort of uh, you know a little bit of credit upside. I'm looking at SSE recently, the UK's with energy supplier uh, that's doing very well. It, it, it's managing to fund its growth by. Uh, you know, selling off stakes in its network and its uh, in its renewable businesses, so it really is a massive growth push, and the key is how to fund it. But now they've got a much more stable uh, environment with, with prices you know, sort of really flatlining around those sort of thirty-five level euros make one hour level for gas. Uh, that really gives them confidence, I think, to, to spend and, and, and drive that sort of uh, renewables push forward. So the outperformer, sorry, Paul, you mentioned is it SSE? SSE, yes, it's a, a UK-listed uh, renewables and networks company. It has transmission distribution assets, and uh, uh, it's, it's really a sort of UK green energy champion, if you like. There are other ones across Europe. You take Vidrola, for example, which is sort of a Spanish champion, or or you know uh, RWE in Germany, or EDP in, in, in Portugal. These are all companies that have got very high ambitions in, <coughs> in renewables, rolling out wind and solar projects, and really have a sort of a pipeline. That for the next sort of three to five years, that is very well covered by projects under construction that have been agreed. So again, these prices are fairly well, or sort of growth is fairly well baked in. Uh, and, and yeah, the, the renewables often set a price, uh, or they may have some sort of price support. So uh, they don't not be taking market risk on the price, so they can actually do these prices up front, which they contract the difference or something like that with, with the supplier. So really, it's about the construction risk and getting it done. And, and actually, therein lies probably the biggest risk they face now. Is there's, there's inflationary risk. You know, the cost of a, a wind turbine has gone up significantly. You know, the cost of steel, uh, for example, all the component parts, all the sort of electronics can go into it. That's rising, and that is causing some problems. And what we're seeing is, you know, some companies are just preparing back their renewables targets you know, to compensate for that. Other others are maintaining their renewables targets, but maybe increasing. Yeah, increasing their sort of capex budgets and you know pushing leverage a bit more or looking at other ways like like SSE it's selling off stakes five percent stakes in their distribution businesses they're looking at other ways of bringing in partners to, to raise that capital to recycle the capital in order to maintain their growth now someone like Orsted for example has a policy of every farm they bring into operation they sell fifty percent of it off to the third party investor they then reinvest that in the next one and the next one and, and, and so on. Uh, they simply don't have the capital to provide their growth. But no, I think the, the, the utility sector is all about growth now and much lower risk growth given a much more stable environment. If, if a lot of that cash, though, Paul, is being pushed back to equity investors, what is the opportunity for a credit investor? Are there any particular pockets of relative value right now? Well, certainly on the gas sector, the spreads are very tight. Uh, you know, you know, sort of double A, you know, Chevron, Shells, Total Energies, companies like that. There are more opportunities, uh, I think, in the utility sector. There are still some companies there who are you know, fairly low rated, sort of triple B uh, type level. Uh, and one of the more interesting areas of the market is, is is the hybrids, which is like subordinated bonds, if you like. They're often rated like a couple of notches lower, so they might be uh, like a non-investment grade uh, a subordinated bond. Um, with equity type characteristics, unlike a senior bond, which might be investment grade rated. Obviously, you get a lot higher higher yields on those uh, on those hybrids. Uh, but yeah, the market has been um, been playing ball. They've uh, we tend to do with the hybrids. You need to have 
maybe a five-year call, you call them and replace them and call them and replace them again, kind of kicking the can down the road. And companies been doing that. And if you like a company like Iberdrola, you could buy a very expensive uh, sort of senior bond that may be, I don't know, 30 basis points over uh, over a swap curve. Or, or you could go subordinate in the same company and probably buy you know, a hybrid for you know, 200 basis points, taking a couple of notches down uh, the, couple, uh, the, the capital structure. It's above equity, but it's below the bond. So there are opportunities there. And also, I think with, um, with the, sort of the, the, the energy transition, these companies are all issuing. Uh, a lot of green bonds and even green hybrids in some cases, uh, and these are also attracted to uh, you know a whole uh, wave of investors who are looking at sort of ESG right now. Uh, utilities are the biggest ESG issuing sector in Europe in terms of you know sustainability linked bonds, uh, green bonds, the, uh, the entire sort of uh, product range, uh, and I think that sector to, to keep uh, maintain their position probably grow going forward. And some companies, 90-95% of what they're spending is is aligned with the EU taxonomy. Uh, which means it, it will sort of qualify, if you like, for, for green investment. So they're very well placed. So I think certainly green bonds are an area of interest, subordinated or hybrid bonds or, or hybrids, if you like. They're not really bonds, they're, they're half on half equity. But they're, they're another area as well. Those companies, I think SSE has some positive momentum. Uh, EDF is another company we quite like. It's one of our focus ideas. It had such a torrid year last year after the, uh, the government forced it to sell. A lot of its nuclear power to uh, third parties at, at a fixed price that you know, costed billions and billions of, of, of euros because you have to buy that power in the market at those elevated prices. <clears throat> it also um, had uh, some safety issues in the nuclear plant, which meant its production was a lot lower. Again, it had to replace that to fill its hedges at the very high market prices. Those two factors have gone this year. Uh, they're not you know, going to be affecting their EBITDA. They went from an 18 billion profit to 5 billion EBITDA loss last year. But I think they can easily get back up to that level this year and probably hit their, their you know, below sort of four times sort of leverage target as well. So it's been nationalized now again, which will provide some sort of backstop. So I think EDF is certainly named to watch this year. They have plenty of hybrids as well. So you can really get some quite, uh, quite juicy yields on some coordinated uh, EDF uh, hybrids. On ESG, Paul, you mentioned a lot of renewables, you mentioned transition, you mentioned green bonds, all of this great stuff. Investors love it. But uh, in the context of energy, I mean, this is fossil fuels, essentially, for a lot of them is, is you know, the bulk of their business. That's not a very clean or environmental uh, business for ESG investors to be getting into. Is that not a bit of like contradiction there? Is it not just like marketing? I mean, what, what's what's really going on in that on that side? Yeah, well, it's the utilities that are the ones who are really the, the, the favourites of the green uh, investors, if you like. I mean, they're, they're phasing out their coal-fired generation. You know, they're, they're using gas and LNG and, and those sort of areas as a sort of transition fuel, also nuclear is CO2-free. Apart from that, they're pushing very hard on the renewables, wind and solar, even moving into areas like hydrogen. Um, you know, the networks that are upgrading and expanding to, to link up to all these renewables projects, they're all qualifying for, uh, for these green projects. The utility sector... Yeah, that's what I say is one of the biggest green issues, or the, in fact, the biggest green issue in, in, in the European market. But for the oil and gas companies, for example, as you say, they're, they're not uh, they're not really in that market at all. They're, they're still a few companies who, you know, a year or so ago, two years ago, BP was talking about cutting back oil production. You know, with a historic kind of changes moved. They've got very high renewables ambitions, but really, you know, they realise there's so much money to be made from oil and gas production, with even eighty dollars a barrel. That you know, the return on capital is like phenomenal compared to what it would be on you know, maybe some renewables projects they could build. Um, yeah, they've got existing oil fields. Let's just keep let's keep drilling and let's keep pumping. We can make um, you know, tons of cash. We can give back to shareholders doing that. It's a lot longer game <coughs> to play uh, to build that renewables capacity. So 
you know, something like Total Energies, they, they have been issuing hybrids, not, not green ones, but just hybrids to, to fund their renewables sort of ambitions. And, and, you know, by 2030, they want to be one of the biggest renewables players in, in the world, as is BP. And they have a long way to go. And right now, I think for them, it's a capital allocation decision. You know, do we you know, get a sort of a huge return on capital from investing in oil and gas, or do we take a much higher risk, lower return option on, on pushing renewables? Right now, oil and gas is winning, uh, which again sort of is precluding them from really issuing the green bonds. Um, they can issue hybrids, but again, just sort of regular hybrids rather than green ones. So, yeah, the oil and gas companies really are a long way off from from being any major bo- uh, green bond issuers because yeah, their core business is going to stay uh, for, for a very long time. Interesting. Okay, thank you. So overall, it's a pretty rosy picture for um, European energy and utilities. Um, but you know, I'm a credit guy, Paul, and I, I worry all the time about everything. So, what keeps you up at night worrying? What What are you scared of in 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 the context of what you cover? Anything Anything uh, <laughs> gnawing away inside you? Well, I mean, there's still risk to the market. I say the end is calling the energy crisis. European energy crisis is over. Um, yeah, there's risk to that, clearly, just like calling the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic over. There's risk to that. There could be a resurgence. I mean, uh, these are just things you have to live with now, I guess. Uh, as I say, for example, Russia is still pumping around sort of 10% of, of, of what it used to in, into Europe, I mean, the sort of southern corridors. Uh, that could be cut again. That would have to be replaced again. That could be a shock. Uh, we could see uh, you know, resurgent demand uh, from Asia has happened about uh, yeah, two years ago. After sort of the COVID sort of restrictions were first sort of lifted, uh, that, that as I said, they can suck a lot of LNG cargo. I mean, there's only finite LNG capacity. Uh, it takes a long time to build uh, new capacity, both uh, for gasification and, and uh, or regasification and liquefaction as well. So, you know, it takes a long time. So, if all those cargoes go to Asia, then Europe again could be looking at well, where we're going to get our gas from. Um, they also got a, got off lightly, I think, somewhat the, 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 in Europe with a fairly mild uh, winter, so the demand for yeah, gas is always so that's peak demand. It, it, it was never that extreme. Uh, that's quite so. Yeah, if you've got a combination, if Russia cuts the last ten percent, if uh, Asia recovers strongly, rebounds strongly, and, and takes all the LNG away from Europe, because they can suck oil, they can ship the LNG anywhere from Australia to, to here or to from America to to China. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just a ship on a sea, like an oil tanker. So if that take gets dragged to um, uh, to Asia, you can't replace it. So you could leave Europe a bit short again. In context, uh, with a colder winter, we could be looking at higher prices. In fact, the futures gas uh, curve does show high prices for this winter, but still nowhere near where we were. Maybe you know, sort of 60 euros or over 35 at the minute. And still, that, that's a reasonable level. But it is still a tight market. There is still the structural risk we're going to have to learn to live with. But at the same time, taking measures like building out renewables capacity and increasing energy import capacity and all these factors that should smooth it over time. But there are some risks still that we could see. Um, yeah, we can see prices rise. We can see some companies, um, uh, you know, maybe struggling again. But I think the you know the worst is by far over. So I, I'm not being kept up at night. Got it. Thanks very much, Paul Vickers of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all his great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out. And thanks again to Erin Hudson from Bloomberg News. Read all of her scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. See you next week on the Credit Edge.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.